Uh, I'm going to say no one's better than me. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's go. Blow up. Welcome to Locked On Dolphins, brought to you by Built Bar. Everybody raise your glasses. Today is Tuesday, May 5th, and we're going to honor Coach Don Shula today. News came through yesterday in the morning, uh, but after I had recorded Monday's show, that, that Coach Shula at age 90 had passed away living an absolutely outstanding life having impacted so many people on the field, off the field, as not just a coach and a football figure, but as a man. And his legacy, if you're like me, uh, I was born in 1989. Coach Shula retired after the 1995 season. I have no memories, no active memories myself of Coach Shula as a member of the Miami Dolphins. Obviously, you hear the lore and the legendary status that he has. But seeing the outpour of support and kind words and stories and heartfelt condolences from people across uh, the football landscape, regardless of your rooting interest or your creed or or what background you were or or what team you work for, the Jets and Bill Belichick and Roger Goodell and every former player he ever had seemingly came out with a, a statement yesterday. Um, Some of the more poignant ones, Dan Marino, Larry Sanka. This was a big loss for the football world. And being somebody who's a little bit younger, right? And I missed the glory days of the Miami Dolphins feel like an alternate reality to me as as somebody who's a little bit younger. It It gave me a lot of appreciation to... To see a figure like that, and you knew that he had the records, the all-time win record, and we're going to talk about that a little bit today in addition to Power to the Pod. we got some good questions that we're going to tackle today and talk about Albert Wilson's contract restructure, but I wanted to start this show talking about Don Shula and his legacy because this was the first time I had really had a chance to see from the football world looking in on Don Shula, what Don Shula meant to so many people. And his loss is a big loss for the Dolphins organization and Dolphins family and his family and the football world in general. And I gained that appreciation hearing and seeing all of the people that that offered their condolences. And yesterday for Dolphins Wire, uh, managing editor of USA Today's Dolphins Wire, I spent a lot of time digging through Don Shula. And what his impact was, and his coaching tree, and his wins records. And I want to talk about some of that stuff off the bat. Because Don Shula was a NFL head coach for 33 seasons. He had two losing seasons in 33 years. Think about that. Seven years with the Baltimore Colts. 26 years with the Miami Dolphins. Two losing seasons. 1976, I believe they went 6-8. and eight. In 1988, I believe they went 6-10. and 10. That is incredible 
And only four more seasons on top of that, he was 500. Don Shula is 172 games above 500 for his coaching career. 172 games. More than 10 years worth of games. He is above being average. And think about that, and think about that as a, if you're a younger Dolphins fan, think about what you've experienced. If you were born 1990, 1989, or earlier, think about the Dolphins that you know. And then think about Shula coached for 33 years and had 328 wins in the regular season over 33 years. That's 10 wins a year, and they didn't even adopt a 16-game schedule until 1978. He'd been coaching double-digit years by that point. And on top of that, 1982 was a strike-shortened season. The Dolphins went 7-2. and two. Only played nine games that year. And this man still 10 wins a season. You factor in his 19 playoff victories, including two Super Bowl championships with the Miami Dolphins, 347 total wins, most in NFL history. 172 games above 500. It's mind-numbing to think about as a Dolphins fan that's of a younger era. How safe are these records for Don Shula? Now, he passed yesterday in the leader in both of those categories, uh, Bill Belichick is next in line with 273 wins as the threat. Uh, George Hallis is next in line behind Shula, but obviously he is uh, one of the original great coaches. Uh, he won't be threatening Shula's records. Bill Belichick might. Uh, Bill Belichick is 68 years old, 273 regular season wins. He trails Don Shula by 55. Five years of 11-5. and five would get him tied by the time Bill Belichick is 73 years old. The good news is the Patriots lost Tom Brady. The bad news is the Patriots have been a lock for 11 wins or more for 20 years. But even still, think about that. Bill Belichick had the failed tenure in Cleveland with the Browns. He's been playing 16-game seasons since he was named the head coach in New England, and the Patriots have been a dynasty for two decades. And this man is still... 55 wins away from Don Shula's record. This man would need to go 11-5 for another five straight seasons to touch Don Shula's record. If the Patriots went 11-5 five straight years, Bill Belichick will have also barely surpassed Don Shula's record for games above 500. He's 26 games behind Don Shula as things currently stand. The good news... One bad season is all it takes. Heaven forbid the Patriots go 3-13 and this year. Belichick loses ground. He's a year older. Father time is against him. I think we should all know what we should be rooting for as it pertains to Don Shula and his legacy and his records in 2020. Last thing I wanted to talk about with Don Shula today. Wanted to talk about his coaching tree. Wanted to talk about the mark he left on the game of football outside of just winning and longevity and being 
the face of the Miami Dolphins organization because whether it was Bob Greasy or Earl Morrill or David Woodley or Dan Marino, Don Shula was the guy who was here for all of the greatest accomplishments that the Miami Dolphins have to offer. Don Shula's coaching tree, his defensive coordinator when he, when he was with the Baltimore Colts was Pittsburgh Steelers Hall of Fame head coach Chuck Knoll, who was there for two decades. And off of that Chuck Knoll tree came Tony Dungy and John Fox. And off of each of their respective trees came Jim Caldwell, Herm Edwards, Mike Tomlin, Frank Reich, Vic Fangio, and one Adam Gase. All stemming from the early 60s, Don Shula working with Chuck Knoll as his defensive coordinator. Two Hall of Fame head coaches off of Don Shula's coaching tree off that singular branch, Chuck Knoll and Tony Dungy. Mike Tomlin might get there someday. He's got a long ways to go as well. Four current NFL coaches off a single branch of the Don Shula coaching tree. Bill Arnsparger, another one. Uh, frequent defensive coordinator, assistant head coach of the Miami Dolphins. Uh, he worked with Shula in Baltimore and then worked with him again in Miami from 70 to 73 and then left to try to be a head coach in the New York Giants and then came back and was the assistant head coach and defensive coordinator again. One of less than 10 head coaches in the NFL, in NFL history with more than 200 career wins, was a disciple of Bill Arnsparger. Marty Schottenheimer is technically a Don Shula coaching tree disciple. Shula worked with Arnsparger, Arnsparger, Marty Schottenheimer was his linebackers coach for two years in the, the mid-70s. The coaches who have come off the Marty Schottenheimer coaching tree. So technically, by if you're doing degrees of separation, two degrees of separation, Bruce Arians, Bill Cower, Mike McCarthy, Wade Phillips, Archell, Tony Sperano, Hugh Jackson, the list goes on and on and on. It's incredible. Don Shula, one of the godfathers of modern coaching. Don Shula has passed at the age of 90, but his memory and his legacy will be remembered not only by the Miami Dolphins, but by the NFL. For the impact that he had, coaches, players, history, you name it, we raise our glasses to you, Coach Shula, for a life well lived and a legacy that will live on forever. Guys and girls, start the competition today with the most important woman in your life, your mom. Mother's Day is her Super Bowl, so celebrate this year's Mother Day by scoring her favorite gift of the day. Your mom will be able to travel in her mind to exotic India, sample the food, and laugh at the perils of raising a teenager in the 1950s India setting through a new book of fiction called The Henna Artist. By the way, it's Reese Witherspoon's book club's pick for the month of May. Then, anytime in May, post a picture of you or your mom holding the ebook or book on Instagram or Facebook and tag the author at the Alka Yoshi. A donation of four meals per post, up to 10,000 meals, will be going to Feeding America. So, guys and girls, buy the henna artist today at your favorite bookseller, including Barnes and Noble, Amazon, Walmart, Costco, and Target, and make mom the ultimate winner in your family this Mother's Day.
Speaking of ultimate winners, how about Albert Wilson? Little Burt Wilson sneaking into this 2020 season after all for the Miami Dolphins. Uh, the speculation was long this offseason regarding Albert Wilson and whether or not he was going to make the roster. And ultimately, it turns out the Dolphins have restructured his deal. I uh, would not be surprised if we find out with more context that the Dolphins kind of played wait and see with the 2020 NFL draft as it pertains to whether or not Albert Wilson was going to be part of their roster or not. Because if you can get a day two wide receiver or an early day three wide receiver that you like, uh, that player is going to be, even after Albert Wilson's restructure, probably one-third of the cost of what Albert Wilson's restructured contract is going to look like. So Wilson, the news broke this morning that Albert Wilson was restructuring his contract with the Dolphins. He was due for $9.5 million base salary this year, over $10.8 million in cap hit because he's got a $1.3 million roster or a signing bonus prorated from 2018 when they signed the deal to begin with. Wilson cutting down his... Uh, salary to three and a half million with another million in incentives. That's a win for the Dolphins. Uh, the Dolphins will now enter the 2020 season with no changes at all to their wide receiver room, which is fine. Um, excuse me, his uh, salary base value is three million dollars with an extra million in incentives. Wilson now will get a chance to prove that he is back to his 2018 form before the hip injury. That seemed to be the big struggle for him was finding the explosiveness and the quickness that made him such a run-after-catch threat in 2018 was not there in 2019. And that's why it seemed pretty elementary and straightforward. And The Dolphins were rewarded last year with some patience at wide receiver by not cutting ties with Devontae Parker too soon. If they get anything close to that level of production out of Albert Wilson, you've struck gold. Let's be honest. You uh, you should not be expecting that kind of bounce back or break back from Albert Wilson in the same way that we saw from Devontae Parker. But I think the most likely outcome for this, no matter what, Albert Wilson is getting close to 30. He's had durability questions. Price is an issue. He's going to play this season. The Dolphins did not want to spread themselves too thin. They understood, okay, you know, we're not going to address every need we have on the roster this year. Let's properly invest in our quarterback and the trenches. And then we will move forward starting next year looking to reassess. And that's going to get into some of the questions for uh, that you guys have brought to the table for us to discuss later in the show. But I would expect Albert Wilson's going to stay on this roster in 2020. He's going to play it out. Hopefully he stays healthy and can earn himself a nice market in the free agent market in 2021. But I do not expect him to be back because even though this is a restructure, this is still a contract year for Albert Wilson. And with the Dolphins' youth movement well underway, our expectation should be that the Dolphins are going to continue that youth movement moving forward. They've got two picks in the first round, two picks in the second round. They're looking to replicate the Alabama offense. You know, if we're, we're just being honest, look for this team to draft Devonta Smith or Jalen Waddle, the Alabama wide receivers who are probably going to be first-round picks in next year's 2021 NFL draft. You know, there's questions with Tua, with his skeptics, citing, well, you know, he's throwing a four first-round wide receivers. Okay, let's, give, let's get a couple first-round wide receivers here in Miami. Same downhill run game. 
Let's make it easy on him by surrounding and investing him. So with the understanding that Ryan Fitzpatrick, you know, there's already some chemistry there. There's some sweat equity there. They weren't going to check all the boxes anyway, too. He's probably not going to enter the the season as the starter anyway. Why invest in it now? Just invest in getting the line right so that way when that transition and segue can take place, we can go out and draft one of these two Alabama wide receivers that Tua played with last year, and they'll have instant chemistry because they played together for multiple seasons at Alabama. Seems like a surefire plan. Hard to go wrong. But that's enough for me. Let's talk about what you guys want to talk about. I promised today would still be a power to the pod. I definitely wanted to make sure we took our due diligence to thank Coach Shula for everything he did for the Dolphins uh, and, and congratulate him on a life well lived. Albert Wilson, a little bit of breaking news for us this morning. Now we got to talk about what you guys want to talk about. We have some draft questions, we have some Dolphins history questions, we have some 2020 Dolphins questions. Start with this one from Kevin that I liked a lot. Who is your favorite under-the-radar Dolphins player ever? No Dan, Jason Taylor, Zach Thomas, or Ricky Williams. Minor Brian Cox and Troy Vincent. Man, I'll tell you what, I got a real soft spot for Aronde Gadsden. Some of the catches that dude had were awesome. Um... I was going to try and think of a defensive player. Trace Armstrong was a name that I loved as a kid. Just a brute of a man. (laughs) Uh, Again, I was born in 89, so my under-the-radar players are players like 2000 and onward. I'm trying to think of the first. The first Dolphins game that I can remember watching on television It was the 1998 wild card win over the Bills. So Jimmy Johnson, Dolphins, uh, they won that football game on January 2nd, 24-17 against Buffalo. Uh, They pulled away in the fourth quarter. Uh, Dan Marino, 12-yard touchdown pass to Lamar Thomas. I got up in front of me now. So Miami was winning, uh, tied 14-14 going into the fourth quarter after a Doug Flutie touchdown pass to Eric Moulds. Uh, Dolphins, Flutie kept gashing them, right? But Buffalo had five total turnovers in that game and nine penalties for 93 yards. Flutie passed for 316 yards. That was the first Dolphins game I was at the time, uh, eight years old. So that was, no, it was nine. I was nine years old. So that was the first Dolphins game I can remember watching on television. So that's kind of my strike zone for finding Dolphins players that are under the radar that I love. Uh, Steve Wilson. In memory of Don Shula, what is your top coaching performance in Dolphins history? Top Shula performance? It's got to be 72, right? Um, undefeated season. You know, they, they came back from losing the, the Super Bowl to the Cowboys. Uh, and just perfection in general is something that everybody has strived for. And Don Shula is the only guy in NFL history that can say that he lived in, in the Super Bowl era and went wire to wire and won. Every game they played that year, every person, they every team they put across from us at the line of scrimmage, we beat them. Fun little side note from uh, this comment from St- Steven. He goes, 
Uh, great job on the podcast. I really enjoyed your performance ten- since taking over for Travis Wingfield. Took a bit to get used to the non-bang enhanced speed of your voice. And then Phil chimes in later and says, "Took a- I-, I can relate. Fact is, I bumped the speed up to 1.2 when I listened to Locked On Dolphins. So here's to a little bit of channeling the energy of Travis Wingfield. I'm going to move real fast here as we move on to our next question from the listeners. Uh, talking about Power to the Pod and your questions as we get through this Tuesday episode. That's about as good as I can do as far as amping up the, the speed here. Uh, Leighton wants to know, what are your thoughts on the Dolphins' plans for having fans attend games next season? Do you think their system could work lead-wide? Yeah, so this was interesting. Uh, Tom Garfinkel went on Good Morning America and talked some about the Dolphins' plans for uh, admissions for fans into Rock Hard Rock Stadium and how it could adhere to social distancing. And they talked about uh, certain times and schedules for people to work through the gate and how you know Hard Rock Stadium has a capacity of 65,000 people, but they may be working with only 15,000 and, and kind of a, an orderly exit out of the stands after the games. It's, it, it's interesting. Uh, I, I really can't make heads or tails at this point as far as if there's going to be fans in the stands. But the league has time and a runway. And I would expect them to do everything that they can to get this full schedule to come out, which they're going to release on Thursday, and then us play that full schedule. And hopefully with you know a six-month runway, we can ramp up the testing capabilities for COVID-19. And, and you know hopefully there are some enhancements and, and advances in not just vaccines, but also treatments for those who are sick. And more infrastructure so that, you know, when people do get sick, we're able to identify them and prevent the spread of the disease uh, so that things like this can happen with some level of normalcy this fall. That seems to be what the league is banking on. They're doing their due diligence. Uh, I think erring on the side of caution is probably a smart thing to do. Uh, and, and hearing the Dolphins kind of being at the forefront of this is how we propose and plan to minimize you know, the horde spread, potential horde spread of a disease in a hotspot for uh, a professional sports event is kind of nice. And, and you wouldn't expect anything less because the Dolphins say what you will about, you know, the past 10 years from a football operations perspective. But Steve Ross and his group uh, running the Dolphins have done a really good job in innovating a lot of different ways and in incorporating the South Florida community and Hard Rock Stadium to, to do a lot of you know, groundbreaking things. Um, Mex Dolphin, what should 2020 Dolphins do in order to honor Don Shula? Use a patch on the jerseys, wear a black ribbon, or win the Super Bowl at all costs? Can I say yes to all three? I think that's reasonable, right? I expect you'll probably see a helmet decal, um, either initials on the shoulder or the armband, uh, like you said, or the black ribbon, uh, some, some kind of indicator on the jersey. And let's win some freaking games. Let's go to the postseason. I think what better way in year two to honor Shula than to do the things that were standard. That was the, the, the standard expectation for Shula was 10 wins in playoffs. Let's see how hard we can push to get there. Uh, but there will be some challenges in that. And, and that's uh, some of the other questions that we have here regarding uh, the offseason plan and how the Dolphins are going to tackle uh, the off-season program virtually until they open up the facilities. That's an interesting dynamic, but I would say this. I think it is to Miami's favor that they have a quarterback in Ryan Fitzpatrick who has played under Chan Gailey before. 
There's not going to be a lot of groundbreaking stuff for the quarterback. Defensively, they went out and got a couple of pieces that are used to playing under Brian Flores. Kyle Van Noy is a huge domino piece. Byron Jones, I mean, say what we will, it's, they're pretty straightforward. You're going to play press man coverage, and we're going to bring the heat after folks. The onboarding of the rookies will be a challenge. I think that's that's something that could deter progress at the beginning of the season. But with that said, you know it's a long season, and provided they play all of it, you're going to see again, much like we saw this year for the Dolphins with half their roster, 60% of their roster being new players, you're going to see 50% of the Dolphins' roster being new players again. That progress from week one to week 17 will be notable. So if the Dolphins can look at the beginning of the year, equal to or slightly better than what they look like at the end of last year, imagine what you can look like by week 17 as this team gels. That's the exciting proposition for the Dolphins. Uh, Dan, if Fitzpatrick goes down for a substantial time this year and the Dolphins feel good about Rosen, do you think they put him out there to generate trade interest and not put Tua behind a line that would be substantially better in 2021 after they have a full year of work together? I think it depends on where the Dolphins season sits. Um, obviously the call is going to be for Tua to play. If it's early in the season, I would err on the side of caution with Tua and say, okay, you know, Josh, you, you've been here. You don't have the injury durability questions. We're going to use you. The double-edged sword to that is if he goes in early in the season, fans are going to say, well, why wouldn't you use Tua? Tua gives us a better chance to win in general perception, and playoffs is still a possibility for this team. So that's an interesting, if it were me at this point in time, and I do reserve the right to change my mind, damn it, because it's May 5th, I would probably err on the side of uh, not playing two in the first half of the season. I'm in no rush to get him on the football field. He is the long-term, anticipated long-term answer. Nothing we see this year is going to change that. So I would be protecting my investment, Dan, as you said, because that offensive line, unless it plays lights out, if the offensive line is crushing the first month of the season and Fitz gets hurt in early October, but the offensive line has blown people off the ball and we're not taking sacks and Fitz got hurt on some freak thing, sure. I think then you then you start to think about it. But the offensive line and the gelling of the offensive line with five new starters being anticipated is going to give me a lot of apprehension to play to a early. Jake wants to know, huge fan of the pod, what route do you think the Dolphins will take in the 2021 NFL draft since we got our quarterback, built the trenches, and situated our secondary playmakers? Question mark and who you like. Touches on some of the stuff that we talked about. Uh, we talked about Albert Wilson. I want one of these Alabama wide receivers next year. You got two first-round picks. Go get one. Go get one in the pass rush, and then we'll get to take a running back early in round two since everybody was worried that we couldn't get J.K. Dobbins or, or uh, DeAndre Swift this year. Breed is on a one-year tenure. Uh, Howard's on a two-year deal, so there's there will be no shortage of opportunities to add wide receivers and running backs and skill players, and I think team speed, finding height, weight, speed guys, and, and general overall team speed for explosive plays is going to be the name of the game. I think that's what they're going to look forward to. Before we go any further, I do want to get some more questions. I do need to talk to you guys about our friends over at Built Bar. 
Uh, Built Bar, sponsor of the show this month, and these guys are awesome. They had sent us over some samples uh, at the beginning of the month, and they do protein bars. And I, you know, even in the case of, you know, social distancing and whatnot, I do still try and stay active. And, you know, meal replacements are a big part of my day when I'm running around the house and trying to grind tape nonstop and so on and so forth. And, and we got these samples from Built Bar and, you know, I'm expecting standard protein bar. And I end up getting it. Dude, these things are like candy bars. They're 110 to 140, 150 calories. They're super light. You bite into it, it's like biting into a Three Musketeers. Soft in the middle, uh, but very, very good amount of flavors. They got a wide range of flavors, you know, fruit flavors, dessert flavors, uh, chocolate, you name it. This is not like hyperbole either, guys. Like This is the best tasting protein bar I've ever had in my entire life. It's hard to explain it unless you've had one. Uh, real chocolate, amazing flavors, uh, plus low calories, high protein, low sugar, no crazy additives. Uh, when you compare it to, to most other protein bars, it's like half the calories and like seven times fewer carbs too. So we got a special deal for you guys. Uh, go to BuiltBar.com and use the promo code LOCKEDON and you can get $10 off your first box of Built Bar. Promo code LOCKEDON, BuiltBar.com. I am not kidding. Go try these things out. They are awesome. We thank them for sponsoring the show. And more importantly, we thank them for an amazing product. Got some iTunes questions to get into here as well. A couple of guys left some reviews for us, so we're going to dig in to wrap up the show. And then we're back on tomorrow. We will be doing more of the NFC West Division crossovers this week, so we have that to look forward to. Uh, Danny Moda, five stars. Pat's just released Mobia Ilfanu. This came through over the weekend. Uh, I don't see anything before Saturday. So if you left one this week and I didn't see it, if it didn't upload, I'll get you next week. Uh, could Should the Dolphins bring him in and bring more depth to the safety room? He's 6'4", 210 plus and runs 440 in the 40-yard uh, dash, so he's fast. Patriots were paying him over 600K while in the practice squad, which brings a lot of questions. How good is he? Uh, former high-round high draft pick, uh, I guess my concern with Obi is he's bounced around the league. Like this isn't just like he flopped out with the Patriots. He's bounced around a lot. And if he's not going to work with the Patriots after bouncing around a little bit, I know there's some concerns there about his physical play style, whether or not he's physical enough to excel at a high level. He's super smart dude. I had a chance to talk to him at the senior bowl a couple years back, really walked away impressed with him. I was super high on him. Somebody else, uh, I, I didn't get specifically to your question, but you asked who are some players that you were high on that you've missed on in your draft work. Obi Melifonwu is one. Uh, Obi Melifonwu, for me, was like a top 40 prospect in that year's NFL draft 2017, but he has not had a chance to stick. Would it hurt the Dolphins to bring him in? No. Would I expect him to make the roster? No, not based on what he's shown throughout the course of his past few uh, seasons and, and failing to latch on with some of these other questions. Uh, Johnny Reeder, one of the biggest knocks on Sam McGuavin and Jerome Baker in 2019 was their inability to disengage off of blocks. With the addition of size and in the defensive front seven, do you see those two running around in space and making plays all over the defense? Definitely Jerome. I'm not sure Sam's going to make this roster, to be honest with you. Because Sam was a CFL player who came over and had some nice traction, and he's a great story. But he's the kind of player that probably made the Dolphins roster and played as much as he did because the Dolphins were in such an aggressive and drastic rebuild. 
in a perfect world, that's probably a guy that's more of a developmental player, maybe a practice squad type player. I don't think Sam McGuire, when you consider they brought in Kyle Van Noy and Elandon Roberts and Camus Gruger Hill and Curtis Weaver and they drafted Injuring. I just think the numbers games are pretty steep for Sam to make the roster. But as far as Jerome Baker goes, yes, absolutely. He had to do a lot of things that probably weren't best suited for him, but he was a team player to do because there was nobody else to do him last year. Jerome should not be plugging gaps downhill. He should be flying sideline to sideline, playing out in space, and shooting gaps off the edge, and playing the weak side of the formation, using that speed to his advantage. Uh, West Coast Fin Fan, listen daily during the lead up to the draft. Thank you. Quick question. Which team had the best draft in your eyes? I kept looking at the Ravens, thinking they got good value on players that could have been good contributors to the Dolphin. And pure value between Dobbins, Duvernay, Prochet, Matabuike, Bredesen, Patrick Green. Yes, uh, they were a team that most definitely drafted uh, strongly versus my own player evaluations. I know the knock on the Ravens draft class as well. They used their top two picks on a linebacker and running back. They aren't valuable positions. To me, I'm less worried about that. The Ravens took players who are going to be strong contributors for their team, short run and long run. They fit team needs. They let good values come to them on the draft board, and that's how good teams stay good. I will say this. Uh, New Orleans Saints did not make a lot of picks that they picked a lot of players for the third consecutive year that I've coveted highly. So I do a analysis of the NFL draft every year looking at my personal rankings that I do for thedraftnetwork.com as a senior NFL draft analyst there. And I compare those to where the players are actually getting picked. And I use the point values of the trade value chart to assess how I value a player versus where he actually goes and what value that is in that discrepancy. Uh, the Saints are the team in the NFL who most frequently drafts along the lines of how I covet players over three-year sample size. And they were top six, seven, eight, somewhere in that range again this year. So I would say the Saints are another team that had a really good draft class as well. Uh, last one from Danes. Or Dennis, uh, question: How do you see the offense changing, if at all, when we eventually make the switch from Fitz to Tua, assuming Tua is 100% with it this year or next? Um, that's a good question. I think philosophically and structurally, you're going to see a lot of the same stuff, which is you know us having talked on this show about replicating the Alabama offense. I think that's the blueprint, and I think staying true to who the Dolphins are. Uh, you may see them lean and and more heavily on the RPO concepts uh, once Tua first gets in because that's where he thrived the most versus Fitz has a little bit more diverse of a palette. He ran Patriot-style offense last year and was in horizontal spread before that in Buffalo and New York. and So that would be my anticipation is you see more true RPO and run-heavy concepts early on with Tua in the lineup just because that's where he thrives. And you have the opportunity in those plays to always make the defender wrong. And that's the important piece about RPOs. That's why they're so difficult to defend is you're, you have a run call played. And if the box is thin, you give the ball, period. No questions asked. If the safety starts to creep down and the linebacker starts to roll in and then the safety starts to roll down into the slot and you know you got heavy box – Okay, then you can transition into reading whoever that defender is on the hash. If he gets width, you throw inside. If he gets depth, you throw outside. You can make them wrong. I think that, conceptually, that will be more prevalent when Tua gets in the lineup versus uh, when Ryan Fitzpatrick is calling the shots. 
Kyle Krabs, Locked On Dolphins, brought to you by Bill Bar. Thank you guys so much for listening to today's show. Raise your glasses one more time for Coach Shula. We'll be back tomorrow. We got plenty of stuff to talk about. So hit subscribe and keep it locked in right here on Locked On Dolphins.